Amen. Amen. Um, anybody in the church that feels led to take banjo lessons, the church will pay for it. I don't, I don't care if I catch flack for it or not. That's the perfect will of God. While you are taking your Bible and turning the book of Titus, I want to tell you the story of Thomas. Thomas is one of my favorite characters of all of church history. He was born in Nottinghamshire, England in the year of our Lord, 1489. He was born to a fairly well-to-do family with uh, lands, lords, and ladies, and all that good stuff. He went to Cambridge University as a young man where he didn't necessarily excel as a student. Um, from what I could tell, it took him 30 years to complete his education. Aren't you glad God uses underachievers? <laughs> But while he was in university, he ran into a bit of a snag, and that is he had kind of this dream of entering the priesthood, and of course, this was a time when everybody was basically Roman Catholic, uh, but he messed around and he fell in love and married a girl by the name of Joan. Priests can't get married, uh, but in a weird twist of fate, uh, Joan died, and so All's well that ends well, I guess. And he entered the priesthood, and it's there that Thomas's story begins to kind of take an unusual shape because it just so happened that he was in the priesthood during the turbulent years of the Reformation in England. And keep in mind from high school history class, please, that the Reformation in England was not necessarily a product of any real theological conviction as it was on the continent, but it was basically the product of Henry VIII wanting a divorce for uh, less than godly reasons. He wanted to marry Anne Boleyn. She was younger and she was a newer model. Well, as it turns out, one of the chief theologians that would help Henry VIII get his divorce and really get his own church and break away would be Thomas. And Thomas had come to believe the gospel. And Thomas had come to believe in the truths that were being taught by people like Martin Luther in Germany, and he saw a great political opportunity in Henry VIII to advance Bible teaching. And eventually he became one of Henry VIII's right-hand men, one of his most trusted confidants, and rose to the highest position in the Church of England, the Archbishop of Canterbury. And it was there that he made his most important contribution to the history of the church. He developed the Book of Common Prayer. And as Baptists, we may not necessarily be familiar with that, but the Book of Common Prayer is a prayer book, and it has in it guides for worship and guides for observance of different Lord's Days and different Christian feasts. And even today, Christians all over the world pray through the Psalms together in the Book of Common Prayer. But what was amazing about the Common Prayer is that as he developed this for the first time in the history of the world, under his ministry, Christians in England began to worship in English. Isn't that an amazing thing? And all was well for uh, Thomas until Henry VIII messed around and died. Then his only legitimate son, Edward VI, became king, and all was fine for that for a while, except Edward VI was notoriously uh, unwell. And he died, leaving the throne open for Henry's daughter by his first wife, Catherine, the fiercely Roman Catholic Queen Mary. And it didn't take long for Thomas's devout Protestantism and Mary's fanatical Catholicism to cross paths, leading Thomas to be tried for sedition and sentenced to die for heresy. He was in prison for two years until both ecclesiastical and civil courts determined his fate. But during this time, to the surprise of everyone, Thomas recanted his beliefs. He denounced the teachings of Protestantism, turned his back on the Bible, and declared the supremacy of the Pope. Yet Queen Mary said, too little, too late, buddy. You're going to die anyway. And he was sentenced to death by burning alive. 
But because he had recanted, he was given the opportunity upon his request to preach one last sermon right before he was burned at the stake. He submitted his sermon in writing, made sure the queen and everybody approved, and she did. All's well, and he gets up to preach moments before he dies. And on the morning that he died, something changed in him. And his message veered off course from his prepared remarks. And so while he preached, he repented of his previous recantations, and he even declared in his sermon, as for the Pope, I refuse him as Christ's enemies, as the Antichrist with all false doctrine. Pretty strong statement. He was taken to the fire and burned, and famously, he put his right hand into the fire first because it had signed his recantations so that it would be born before, burned before all the rest. Thomas Cranmer was a man who lived a messy life, a life of courage, a life of fear, a life of faith, and a life of doubt, a life of great suffering, but also of great contribution, a life of questionable decisions and allegiances, but undeniable intelligence. But one thing I think we can safely say about Thomas Cranmer, especially as English-speaking Christians, that Thomas Cranmer left the church better than he found it. He left the church better than he found it. Tonight, as we finish up studying the book of Titus, we are going to see the Apostle Paul give counsel to Titus in Crete as he simply tells him, Titus, make sure you leave the church better than you find it. It's in Titus chapter 3, verse number 9. If you found your place, we'll read along together. Paul says to Titus, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to see me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. And he doesn't say amen, but amen. As we've seen the book of Titus, this is a book that is written to a church that is disordered. And the apostle Paul has sent Titus to the church on the island of Crete as his emissary, his representative, to help set things that are broken right, to set things that are out of harmony in their proper place. He's told him in chapter 1 to raise up faithful leaders, men who will preach the gospel, men who will live out the gospel and its effect in their lives. And he says in chapter number 2 that as this happens, as the gospel is preached, it is going to start to take root in people's lives so that all kinds of people, men and women and young and old and slave and free, they're all going to be transformed by the gospel and so that the gospel will produce good works. And Titus has heard from the Apostle Paul the great reminder that we looked at last week from Titus chapter 3 and verse number 5 that the three-word summation of the gospel message is that he saved us. Not by our good works, but so that we would perform good works, so that we would live out the key truth of Scripture that our God saves. The church is the gospel made visible. This is Titus's assignment. But as you read these closing verses, you can see, especially from verse number 12 of Titus 3, that this was not a permanent assignment. Titus was not going to spend his life ministering in Crete. Uh, Paul fully expected to recall Titus back to 
Nicopolis, come back to me. Eventually, Titus would leave this church and leave this ministry and hand it off to other people. And what Paul is writing to him really is simply to say, this one piece of advice, Titus, when you leave the church, make sure you leave it better than you found it. Make sure that it's better off when you leave than it was when you got there. Now, I want you to consider for us the weight of this fact. Your church membership at Sharon Heights Baptist Church is only temporary. That eventually you will leave this church. Every one of us will. Many of you, um, I was going to say I hope all of you, but that don't quite sound right. Many of you will only leave this church when you go to be with the Lord forever. Some of you are going to get an unexpected phone call, an opportunity in your career. You're going to fill us the will of the Lord, and you're going to move far, far away. Some of you are going to go off to college and never return and land in other congregations. Uh, who knows? May just feel led to go somewhere else. Who knows where God will lead us from where we are tonight. But your membership here is only temporary. One day, somebody else is going to be sitting in your seat. One day somebody else will be teaching your Sunday school class. One day somebody else will be serving in your place. And I believe it's good for us to stop tonight as we read Titus 3 and ask ourselves the question, are we doing everything possible to make sure that we're going to leave this church better off than we found it? Is it going to be better when we leave than it was when we got here because we were here? And in this last section, the Apostle Paul gives Titus three pieces of advice that I want to give you tonight that would help us make sure we are going to leave this place better than we found it. And here's the first one in verse number 9. Titus, if you want to leave the church better than you found it, avoid divisive topics. Avoid divisive topics. He says in verse number 9, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for those things are unprofitable and worthless. As I told you a second ago, the apostle Paul wants to remind Titus and his congregation that the gospel is good news that creates good people. And the gospel makes people who are good for something. They're good for the world. Stupid arguments about junk that don't matter, that's not good for anybody. And so Paul says, Titus, there are things you need to emphasize and there are things you might as well just leave alone because they're not going to help you and they're not going to help the people that are listening to you. And it seems that there was probably a group of people in Crete that seemed to pop up in every single church who had in their minds and in their arguments their favorite little obscure subject, their favorite little insignificant theological point, their favorite little random interpretation of doctrine that they loved to debate. They love to bring up at every occasion. They love to divide because other people didn't agree with their particular nuance and their particular slant. And the Apostle Paul says, Titus, stay away from that junk because it's not going to help you. It's not going to help your church. In fact, there are four ways Paul talks about this. The first there in verse number nine is foolish controversies. Now, it is absolutely true that the church of Jesus Christ is the pillar and ground of the truth. We are built by truth, and we are built for truth. We must stand for truth. Doctrinal precision matters. That's why Titus was in Crete to begin with. But there are a lot of battles that just are not worth the fight. There are a lot of peculiarities and particularities that we could fight about that absolutely do not matter. I grew up hearing this kind of preaching by a lot of preachers I was around. They'd preach against everything and anything just so they would have something to preach against. They would preach against stringed instruments in church. The only instrument that God blesses is a piano. I guess they've never looked inside of one. And don't bring drums in church because you don't want any percussion in there. Again, look inside your piano. People debate obscure theological points to prove how smart they are. Debate topics they don't understand and words they can't spell 
to prove how right they are. On a practical level, people come to business meetings and let minor points that absolutely do not matter, let dollars and cents disrupt the unity of the church. Paul says, if you want to be sure you leave your church better off than you found it, avoid foolish controversies. Then he says you should avoid genealogies. Now, some of y'all read that a minute ago and you thought, now, wait a minute, Paul, I'm into that Ancestry.com stuff. I want to know, you know, about my third cousin once removed uh, on my mama's side. I don't know about this stuff. He's not talking about that. What the Apostle Paul is probably writing about was this particular kind of weird Jewish practice that some of these false teachers had at the time where they would try and connect themselves or maybe other people to uh, specific Jewish characters and Jewish legend and Jewish heroes through their genealogy. Say, I'm kin to this guy or I'm kin to, to so-and-so and that kind of person. And so they were always distorting the Bible, particularly in its genealogies, to look for something that really wasn't there. Paul says, don't do that. I was listening to a guy preach, and none of you would know. If you're from my part of the world, you would know him, I'm sure. Everybody thinks of this gentleman as, as a great Bible scholar, and he was preaching on September 11th about the significance of the number 11 in the Bible and what it meant for the World Trade Center and the future of America. Folks, that ain't in the Bible. It ain't. If you want to leave the church better than you find it, don't look in the Bible looking for some kind of weird mysticism that is not there. Good Bible teachers are not showing you stuff that isn't there. Good Bible teachers are teaching you what's in there. That's what Paul's saying. And he says, dissensions, dissensions. Again, people that love to fight. These people that like to be church bullies. We'll talk about them in a minute. Create little tribes that divide the body. Then he talks about those who quarrel about the law. It could be that there were people, probably were, that were making observance of the Jewish law mandatory for salvation. Or it could be that they were uh, trying to split these little microscopic hairs and divide from people over matters of interpretation that really just did not matter. Ultimately, there were people misusing and abusing things from the Bible in ways that were harmful. And each of these points that Paul makes in these verses, as he says, these things are unprofitable and worthless. They remind us of a deeper reality. And that is that as a church, as God's people, we can very easily be distracted. And we can make secondary things the primary thing. And in doing so, we can lose the main thing. We can talk so much about our favorite doctrines or our political preference or our specific authors and their denominational ideals or our odd interpretation so much that we lose the gospel altogether so that we neglect what we're here to do and that is to spread the gospel if you want to leave the church better than you find it then make sure that you're talking about Jesus all the time make sure that everything you do every lesson you teach every song you sing make sure that it's always pointing to Jesus now one of the great things I love about our church is that not everybody here agrees about everything all the time that's not a mark of division that's a mark of health we don't all carry the same Bible translation or like the same kind of music or have the same ideas about election or the doctrine of the end times, and that's okay. There are rooms to disagree. There's room to disagree for Christians in those things, and that's a sign of a healthy church. But in a healthy church, those secondary things never eclipse the main, never eclipse the main thing. And that's what's happening here in Titus chapter 3. Things that were important to individuals but were becoming more important than Jesus. There are a lot of things that are important to me, but none of those things should ever be more important than Jesus. So Paul says, you avoid divisive topics. But then in verses 10 through 11, he says, Titus, if you want to leave the church better than you found it, then you answer difficult people. Believe it or not, there were difficult people in the church at one time here in the book of Titus. As for a person who stirs up division, warn them once and twice and then have nothing more to do with them. Paul can see, even though he's miles away, he can see the troublemakers. 
He can see the fire starters. He can see the squeaky wheel. He can see the politicians. And he tells Titus, here's how you handle them. Every church I've ever known and been a part of has had its pot stirrers who are so desperate for attention that they will fight to get it. They'll start a fight about nothing just to get some attention. They'll start a fight they think they can win just so somebody will give them some significance. They'll start a fight they know they're going to lose. They'll start fights with people they don't like and with people they do like. Sometimes no matter, there's some people that sometimes that just no matter where the battle is located in the church, they're always on the front lines. And that the common denominator in every conflict is them and their little tribe. Paul says, here's how you handle those people. And what he's talking about here, I think, are what Tom Rainer called church bullies. And in an online article I came across a long time ago, he, he listed a bunch of qualifications for church bullies. He described them perfectly. Number one, they do not recognize themselves as bullies. Rather, they see themselves as the hero in every situation. They are the savior of the church. Second, they have personal and self-serving agendas. They know exactly what their church should look like. And any ministry or person that goes contrary to their ideas about how it should be has got to be eliminated. They form power alliances with weaker members in the church. Some of you would never, ever, ever be a bully in the church, but you let other bullies use you for their agenda. They tend to have intense and emotional personalities. They can yell the loudest. Their face can be the reddest and they can be the meanest. They're famous for saying people are saying. Well, you know, people are talking and they're saying. Somebody ever comes to me and says, well, you know, preacher, people are saying, here's what that means. That means one of two things. That means number one, this is what you want to tell me, but you're too afraid to own up to it. Number two, this is what your wife wants you to tell me. <laughs> Third, they find their greatest opportunities in low expectation churches. They have an entitlement view of church membership. Nobody expects anything out of anybody. And so they expect that the church exists to satisfy them. They're allowed to bully because other church members will not stand up to them. We'll get to that. They create chaos and wreak havoc. They often move to other churches after they have done their damage. Churches have bullies. Paul knows that. And he says, Titus, here's how you handle it. Several Years ago, I received a phone call from my sister-in-law, Amy's sister, and our nephew, Wesley. He, had, he was being bullied at school, and they, had, they were in a very, very well-to-do school system at that time. And the school system gave all the kids iPads, which is great. But these bullies on the bus, they had taken Wesley's iPad and thrown it out the bus. And so now he was upset because he was being bullied, and you know he's in trouble because he had lost the iPad. And Amy's sister wasn't married at the time and, and didn't know how to handle it. There's no guy around, so... I get to do the fatherly advice thing. Man, I don't know. Uh, so I said, here's how you respond to a bully. And I told him, here's how the best way to do it. I said, Wesley, here's what you do. You're going to get in trouble, but here's what you do. You tell him to stop, and you ball up a fist, and you punch him in the mouth as hard as you can. You're going to get in trouble, probably from your mom and from your teachers, but they'll leave you alone. Paul wants us to know in the church how to stand up to a bully. So I'm going to give you now the same advice that I gave Wesley. Here's how God wants us to stand up to a bully. Here's how you confront them. Paul says in verse 10 and 11, he says, you warn them once, then twice, and then have nothing more to do with them. You stand up to a bully by confronting them. Try to lead them to repentance, and then you walk away. What Paul's doing here is echoing the language of Matthew chapter number 18. When the Lord Jesus taught us, Matthew 18, 15, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. 
That's something, isn't it? If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile, a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. What do you do? You go to them and you say you're out of line, you're in sin and you need to repent. And then you go back to them with some more people that know about it and you say you're out of line, you're in sin and you need to repent. You're a bully and you're causing trouble. Then what do you do? You bring them before the church. And the church comes together and says, your behavior is out of line with the gospel and you vote them out. That's the book, folks. But here's what we've done. We're so afraid of hurting people's feelings that we've created an environment where it's easy for church bullies to have their way. And we've coddled them and other people are hurt. We should take the word of God and the health of the church seriously enough to put bullies on notice and to say, we will not put up with this. What we want to do is we want to keep peace by any means necessary. So we want to do like we would do in elementary school when the bullies would pick on us. We want his hand over our lunch money. Here, you just take the keys to the place and leave us alone. Folks, you can't make peace with sin. You can't make peace with division. You cannot make peace with this kind of error. And what the Apostle Paul is offering here is an approach that models truth and grace because it gives somebody the opportunity to repent while it confronts them of their sin. This approach prioritizes holiness and love. This approach cares about the soul of the person and the health of the church. And Paul looks underneath their critical spirit. And he says, this person is warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. This person refuses to repent. And it gets to this point. Then Paul is saying they've got a heart problem that proves they don't know the Lord because they believe they are justified by power. They believe they're justified by being right, by being smarter, by being more influential or more important. They believe that they are justified by winning. That's what a bully is. Paul said they're always going to be a problem in the church. So if you love your church, stand up to bullies. And the best way to do that is to stand up to them as soon as they come to you. As soon as they try and use you or recruit you, stand up to them and say, you're out of line, this stops right here. It stops right here. Stand up to bullies. So Paul says that we should avoid divisive topics and we should confront these dangerous people. But he closes by saying in verses 12 through 15, he talks about how we should assist devoted people. Now, the letter to Titus ends the way most New Testament letters do, really, the way most letters from the ancient world would have ended. They end with these kind of personal greetings. As Paul writes about Artemis and Tychicus and, and this place called Nicopolis. And eventually, uh, it looks like Artemis and Tychicus are coming to Crete. And when that happens, Titus would be free to go. And Paul says, come to me in Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Uh, in the ancient world, travel was incredibly dangerous, but especially during the winter times. So Paul said, I'm just going to stay right where I'm at until the weather breaks. And he said, I hope that you can make it to me there. I love that the Apostle Paul cares about Titus. He's leading in a hard place. Titus says, man, I love you. Paul says, man, I love you. I want to encourage you. I want to help you. I want to give you some counsel, and I want to give you some advice. But in the meantime, Apollos and Zenos in verse number 13, Zenos the lawyer, that's interesting, isn't it? Uh, they're coming to visit Crete, or they're coming through Crete. Paul says, Titus, see that they lack nothing. Make sure that they have everything that they need. Titus, your church has the opportunity to do God's work with God's mean 
means that are going to advance God's mission. I love that, man. And he even says to them, I want you to be fruitful. I want you to be fruitful. I want you to be unfruitful there in verse number 14. He wanted them uh, to be fruitful in investing in the work of the kingdom. His advice to Titus was, Titus, these guys are good men. They're coming your way. Do every single thing that you can to make their trip as easy as possible. And he said, in doing that, as you get them to where God has called them, God is going to bless you for that investment. And the Bible says that when we today invest in the work of the Lord, whether it's our giving in our church or our giving to missions, when we do that, the Bible talks about how that puts fruit in our account in Philippians chapter number four. Do you know how God advances the gospel? God advances the gospel through the open-handed generosity of his people. That's how he does it. He spreads the message through your giving. And it's an amazing thing. And I'll just tell you, I've never seen that to the degree in any church that I sit here at Sharon Heights. How God uses just ordinary people. Ordinary people to put people on the front lines of sharing the gospel message. And as he does that, God says, I'm going to bless Sharon Heights as if they were serving in Africa. As if they were there in Guatemala. As if they were all over the world. You say it this way. As you read the book of Titus, Paul wants Titus to preach the gospel. And he knows that as he preaches the gospel, uh, God is going to use the message of the gospel to change people and equip them for good works. Now, Paul closes with an actual living, breathing opportunity to do something good. He said, Titus, you've got good people coming into town. Invest in them, love on them, help them. If you want to lead the church better than you found it, take every opportunity you have to do all the good that you can. Take every opportunity you have to pray for somebody who needs it. Take every opportunity you can find to encourage people when they're down. Take every opportunity you can find to give and to sow in the life of God's people. There are every day in the life of the church, every day we find natural opportunities in our everyday life cycle to do good. Take advantage of them. Take advantage of them. And when I think about these verses, I think that, I know some of these names. I know something about Titus and Apollos, and of course I know Paul. I don't know much about Artemis or Tychicus, but I don't know the name of a single person in the church of Crete. Not a single person. But those ordinary saints, as confused as they may have been, could be instrumental in the mission of God. Understanding that and living in the reality of that, that's how you leave the church better than that, better than you found it. Knowing that, God has put you here for such a time as this. That it is no accident you are sitting in the place you're sitting tonight. In this church, in this community, at this time. And that God wants to use you to do good. So Paul closes with the ordinary word of grace in verse 15. Grace be with you all. There's a mutual love going back and forth. It was a love that birth this letter, and it would be the love of the Lord Jesus that would sustain this church. But I would ask about our church. I would ask about our church. We are like the church of Crete, aren't we? We are just ordinary folks. We've got our messes. We've got our confusions. We've got our problems. There's ordinary people that know Jesus, ordinary people that should want to make him known, and ordinary people that need him a whole lot. There's ordinary people who've believed an extraordinary message. Are we going to, 
Are we going to do everything we can to make sure that our church is better when we leave than it was when we got here? How do you do that? For one, you don't waste your time on stuff that doesn't matter. You focus on Jesus and make him your priority. Second, when there are sins that pop up in the lives of people, when people are trying to be hostile and people are trying to advance their agenda in the church and create havoc, you go to them and say, brother, sister, this is wrong. This can't go on. And you look for finally every opportunity you can to do good, whether it's in a Sunday school class, whether it's in the nursery, whether it's driving a van to pick up kids, people that can't drive to come to church or take them home when church is over, whether it's working security, whether it's running a soundboard, whatever it is, look for every opportunity you can find to do good. And if you do, if you do, when you leave, Sharon Heights will be better because you were here. I hope that when I leave, whenever that time comes, I hope that the place is better off because I was here. I really do. I certainly don't want it to be worse off because I was here. And I hope to do more than just break even, don't you? I hope to be missed. And I hope that people say, and the Lord knows, it's better because he was there. How about you? Will it be better because you were here? Let's stand together today. We're going to have an invitation tonight. Maybe you need to just come to the Lord at this altar and say, Lord, show me in concrete ways how I can make this church better because I was here. Show me where my prayers are needed. Show me where my giving's needed. Show me where encouragement's needed. Lord, help me to make this place better because I was here.